We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the unceded, ancestral, and occupied traditional territory of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations of the Coast Salish peoples. In some parts of Canada, treaties were signed with First Nations that gave incoming settlers rights to much of the land, while in other areas, few or no treaties were signed. Unceded land was never given or legally signed away to Britain or Canada. It was stolen and continues to be occupied and governed by settlers today. As we live, work, surf and play, we are grateful to the Métis, Inuit and Indigenous peoples of Turtle Island and from around the world who have stewarded these lands and sacred surf spots for thousands of years. We recognize their amazing resistance, resilience and strength in the face of ongoing dispossession, colonial violence and injustice. In particular, we wish for justice to be brought for the murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls from across our country. We believe that for true healing and harmony to occur, we must reflect and speak up about oppression while working together as we move forward in truth and reconciliation. We can be better. We can do better. Freshies, welcome to Permastoke. I am your host, Derek Hyatt. In this podcast, we talk to your favorite surfers and stand-up paddleboarders from across the Great Lakes, Canada, the U.S., and beyond. Take a peek into their lives and find out what it means to be stoked. Is it a natural state of euphoria, elation, a relentless commitment? I also talk to other Permastoke individuals related to surf culture, such as artists, entrepreneurs, filmmakers, musicians, philanthropists, yogis, and much more. Join me in learning from these field experts and enthusiasts while being inspired by their undying passion, insights, and rad tales. Permastoke is brought to you by Freshwater Surf Kids, your surf brand devoted to spreading the stoke across the unsalted seas and cultivating pride amongst the surf community. We do this by providing products and apparel that celebrate what makes both Great Lakes and Canadian surf culture so special. Stand out in the tribe by rocking our signature tee that features rad monoline illustrations of surfers shredding it up on each of the Great Lakes. Visit freshwatersurfbids.com for yours today. And be sure to check out our stand-up paddleboard school. With future plans to relocate to Southern Ontario, we currently offer basic and advanced courses private lessons, tours, custom experiences, and sup yoga in the waterways of beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. Connect with Mother Ocean, have fun, enjoy good company, and the West Coast sights and wildlife as you take your skills from okay to killer with a Paddle Canada certified instructor. If you'd rather stay dry, check out our Great Vibes Yoga Meditation and Healing Program. Aloha is a life force energy of loving and living in harmony with all my relations. Through movement, mantra, meditation, and breath, our classes reveal to seekers how to merge with their higher self so they may spread great vibrations and the spirit of aloha throughout the global consciousness. We use powerful technologies such as kundalini yoga and the Hawaiian art of ho'oponopono to calm the nervous system and leave you feeling uplifted and in harmony with mind, body, and spirit. 
Enjoy community, connection, and a chill atmosphere filled with great vibes and sacred ancient teachings delivered with humor and integrity. In this episode, I interview author of Tom Blake, A Surfer's Philosophy, Dr. David Christopher Lane. Dr. Lane is a professor of philosophy and sociology at Mount San Antonio College in Walnut, California. He specializes in the study of new religious movements, including cults and the interface between science and religion. He is known for his book, The Making of a Spiritual Movement, the untold story of Paul Twitchell and Ekon Karp which exposed the origins of Ekankar and demonstrated the plagiarism of its founder, Paul Twitchell. Dr. Lane is also an avid surfer and body surfer, and he won the World Body Surfing Contest in 1999 and the International Body Surfing Contest eight times between 1997 to 2016. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Lane in detail about American swimmer, lifeguard, stuntman, inventor, writer, early vegetarian, philosopher, and one of the most influential surfers in history, and the founder of California surf culture, Tom Blake. Tom Blake has been described by his biographer, Gary Lynch, as the obvious link between the ancient South Pacific waterman and the 20th century Anglo waterman. Blake was born March 8, 1902 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Dr. Lane informs us that Blake's mother died when he was only 11 months old and his father abandoned him when he was still a toddler. He didn't graduate high school, his marriage lasted less than a year, and he had no children. He had very little money, he lived most of his life by himself. Some regarded him as a beach bum, yet his simple philosophy radically changed the lives of millions in less than a century. His achievements include, in 1922, he set the world swimming record in the 10 mile open. 1926, he was the first person to surf Malibu along with Sam Reed. In 1928, he won the first Pacific Coast Surf Riding Championship and invented the hollow paddleboard. In 1929, he invented the waterproof camera housing In 1931, he invented the sailboard and patented and manufactured the first production surfboard. In 1932, he won the Catalina paddleboard race. And in 1935, he invented the surfboard fin, AKA the skeg or keel. And he published his first book solely devoted to surfing called Hawaiian Surfboard, which was republished in 1983 as Hawaiian Surf Riders. In 1937, He produced and patented the first torpedo buoy and rescue ring, both made of dua aluminum. In the 1940s, he was behind the first production sailboards, and in 1969, in Surfing Magazine, he authored an early draft of Voice of the Atom, a wave-riding-inspired religious philosophy, the core equation of which, nature equals God. He later carved this into a rock in Wisconsin. And in 1982, he published Voice of the Atom as we know it today. And he's also known for being a leader in physical fitness, natural foods, and healthy diet. He virtually began the surfing lifestyle as we know it. I also want to give a disclaimer for this episode. 
because in this episode with Dr. David Christopher Lane, we also discuss controversial topics, including, but not limited to, capitalism, Catholicism, cults, kundalini yoga, modern education, politics, religion, yoga, and the spiritual leader, Yogi Bhajan. I want you to know that the views and opinions expressed are those of myself, Derek Hyatt, and Dr. David Christopher Lane, and are by no means meant to persuade others one way or another. It's simply a conversation between two people expressing their thoughts freely. Honestly, if I had it my way, I would have edited out the majority of this episode in order to avoid controversy. However, out of respect to my guest, his time and the energy he took to to be with me during this podcast, I decided to suck it up and put it all out there. So don't believe what I say, but live according to your own heart, your own truth, and your own convictions. This episode was recorded on July 12, 2020, and features explicit language. Hello, David. Welcome to Permastoked. How are you? Good, man. Thanks for having me. Right on. It's it's a pleasure to have you here. I'm pretty excited. Um, you know, you you were just mentioning that swell. How's the surf been out there? It's terrible today, although we might get a little pickup from Christina, the hurricane that's now a tropical storm, but uh, it's sketchy. It's like one to two, maybe a three-foot set. But we're going to end up going to Newport later this afternoon, hopefully get some. Excellent, excellent. So how much surf do you get in your life these days? Well, we live in Huntington Beach, right? And so my wife surfs too, and my kids, I have uh, two boys. You'll like the name, Kelly and Sean. Kelly was named after Kelly. Kelly Slater. Yeah. My high school uh, good friend, Jim Miller, his daughter is his girlfriend, Kelly Slater's girlfriend, Kalani Miller. Oh, wow. So Jim Miller and I were good friends ever since we got kicked out of the football team freshman year and we became surfers. But um, and the other kid is named Sean, named after Sean Thompson. So everybody okay. surfs. So uh, we kind of try to go three or four or five times a week if we can. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I, so you live right in Huntington Beach? Yeah, right in Huntington Beach, right on oh. the harbor, actually. You could actually take our little boat across the harbor and surf sunset. The problem with Sunset is that we've had a lot of shark reports. Like, I don't know if you remember, about three or four years ago, there was all these great white adolescents. Okay. Like 14 of them in the water. Wow. I don't really like going out of that place. It just no. gives me spooks. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I was in Huntington Beach a couple of years ago <clears throat> and uh, did some surfing there and checked out all the shops and everything. Went to the museum. It was pretty cool. Well, like a- as you know, Huntington Beach is just a huge pitcher's mitt. I mean, or a catcher's mitt. It gets more surf. Even if it's not that good, there's always some kind of way, especially near the pier. Yeah. When I was in California, you know, I didn't quite know as much as I know now because the one place I would have definitely wanted to go visit was San Clemente. Yeah. San Clemente is the hotbed. You know, I used to live there back in the early 80s, you know, when Sean uh, Beshin was started and uh, Matt Archibald. You know, my nephew surfed with those guys because they all went to San Clemente High School, right? And it was a competitive you know they all go to t street which is the place where everybody hangs out and okay. then of course the lower trestles or upper trestles or cottons goes off it's it's probably the best way of in southern california nice yeah and that's where all the sort of industry is as well right yeah it's all really focused in there because back in the day like in the 70s it was kind of cheap the property was cheap now forget it, it's outrageous but back okay. then you could buy something yeah yeah, it's it's a good spot. And that's where Slater's girlfriend, Kalani Miller, Jim Miller, my friend, he lives there. Uh, and so he t- oftentimes hangs out in San Clemente because he stays with them. 
Oh, amazing. Perfect. So how, how are things down there with all this coronavirus stuff? Oh, dude, Huntington Beach, I, if I, I know I'm going to say something completely politically incorrect, but it's white trash bed and breakfast around here. Nobody wears a mask. It's like these idiots because they, they got all this Trump support shit. Oh, so, sorry about that, but the no, fact is cool. it's ridiculous. They should be wearing a mask, protecting old people like me. Yeah, get this damn thing. <laughs> and uh, but it's it's weird. I mean, nobody. I mean, not nobody, but like ninety percent of the people do not wear a mask, and okay. the beach gets completely jammed up. So you got to be real careful where you go out. Yeah, yeah, I know. Up here in Canada, we kind of watch the news, and we're like, "What the hell is going on down there?" It's it's not. I mean, listen, you're we're living. At, I can't even go there because it's just like, oh my god, the apocalypse! Every time I yeah. look at the orange guy, I want to shoot myself. But that's yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I sometimes think like, imagine if a year ago we had a vision of ourselves a year later, and we saw ourselves walking around with these masks. And think about know. it. I mean, I walked into a Whole Foods yesterday, you know, because you have to wear a mask to go into a store. It's so much surreal. But you know what's funny? A couple of years ago, I was in Japan, and people were wearing masks back then. You know, they've been wearing masks in Tokyo for 20 years, 25 years, because they they have respect not to get you sick. They're not doing it for them not to get sick. They're doing it because they may have a cold, but they don't want to give it to you, which is yeah. a really sweet thing. Yeah. In the United States, however, we like to <laughs> cough on you and give it to you. Oh, brother. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here in Vancouver, there's, you know, a fairly big Asian population. So I've noticed that too, you know, come cold and flu season, there's a lot of people in masks already. So yeah. I did have some familiarity with that. So, but now you're seeing everybody wearing the mask. Yeah, so, right, right. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it looks like my son goes to UC Berkeley. We had to pull him out because everything went online, right? Because nobody's mm. going to class. And I teach at the college, and they've already canceled the fall semester. It's going to be all online. Oh, wow. So and what, the question is the high school, you know, the grammar schools. This is what happened. Okay. So how do you feel about that? Are you ready and willing for the yeah, online learning? Or? Cool. I mean, I mostly teach online. I've been teaching online for like 20 years anyways, kind of half okay. and half, you know. But my son, Sean, my oldest son, is pretty bright. He uh, He's against it. He thinks it should be online until we get a vaccine or some kind of drug to mitigate people dying from it. So. Mm -hmm. Wild times, wild times. You know, it's like the world is off its axis. Yeah, for real. So, hey, why don't you, uh, you know, tell us a bit about yourself and kind of introduce yourself to the audience so they know a bit about um, Dr. David Christopher Lane. I suppose you use the C to distinguish you because there's... That's right, because there's some kind of racist idiot online. I think he's got my same name. So. Oh. <laughs> right? Because somebody goes, I didn't know you were a white supremacist. I go, dude, that's not me. Oh, man. About? He's got the same name. You know, it's like, come on. So that's why I always actually, funny thing is I always like the name Christopher more than I like it. So I just kind of threw that in there. So it's just the way I did it. But I've been a professor of philosophy for 32 years. I taught, I've been teaching for 40 years. Uh, uh, I got a PhD, a couple MAs. My focus, ironically, was on the history of of North Indian religions and the politics mm -hmm. that involved there and the influence on North American. Religion. Got my PhD, you know, like 25, 30 years ago. And so and my wife's a professor too at the same college. She's also got a PhD. We also share the same office. Oh, cool. And she's the chairperson. So she's really my freaking boss. Wow. <laughs> I get it on both ends around here. <laughs> yeah, for real. So so that's a bit about the, you know, your career side. So where did your where does your interest for uh, Tom Blake come in? You know, it's interesting about Tom Blake. Tom Blake's a fascinating character. You know, there is that one Magnus opus that everybody should read. We've already mentioned it by Gary Lynch, which is really the book on Tom Blake. Mm -hmm. I, 
I think my interest in Blake actually came from the 1960s. I had a friend of mine who used to talk to Blake at Zuma Beat because he would hang out in his van or his whatever truck he had at the time because he's a fairly bohemian character. Mm-hmm. And so I started getting interested. You know, he turned vegetarian at the age of, I think he was 20, not 24, maybe 22 years old. And I've been a vegetarian since I was 16. So, you know, it kind of resonated with that kind of interesting. Here's a guy that's a vegetarian, has a kind of a bohemian lifestyle, but he's also the great innovator, as you know. I mean, he's mm-hmm. the guy more or less, I won't say invented the fin, but he's the one who made it more popular. He also wrote the first book on Hawaiian surfers. And also his philosophy. I think if you read him, he's a pantheist. This guy doesn't, it's a case radical. He basically thinks the secret to the whole universe is except nature is God, which is a very Spinozian idea. And he he even writes it, you know, he puts it in scripts in a rock in Wisconsin, nature equals God. And it's it's funny because he doesn't believe that we're going to resurrect from the dead. He doesn't believe, you know, the kind of typical Christianity. But what he does be is that we're all part of nature. And so the atoms go, he wrote a thing called the voice of the atom. We all go back to nature. It's a very sweet philosophy that he has. Now, I, I understand it's unorthodox and it's heretical and, you know, yada, yada, yada. But he's he's got that nature's first. Yeah. That interesting. Yeah, definitely. You know, he's interested in Einstein. And he's interested in this idea of equals MC squared and the whole idea that nothing can be destroyed. All it can do is be changed. Okay. He did have an idea of eternal life, but it's an, not the kind of eternal life that, you know, maybe we'd like. Like Woody Allen goes, I like the living. Yeah. Instead, yeah. You're, you're melting with the atoms or the drops of water in the ocean. Yeah. Not necessarily like a sentient life, but st- still, yeah. So this whole nature equals God idea, I feel like for me, at least in the circles that I run in, you know, like like yogic circles and things, this is fairly, you know, common kind of lingo now. But I suppose when he was saying this, this was really ahead of its time or blasphemous. or Yeah, especially because he wasn't coming from an Eastern philosophy perspective, right? He wasn't necessarily practicing yoga in the 30s and 40s. He'd come from a Christian background, but he'd kind of transformed it by his surfing, by being in the water, by observing nature and how nature works. He once had a quote, I'm probably going to butcher it. He says, uh, you know, nature basically has no sentiment. It doesn't have, it doesn't care. Therefore, you have to wake up to that, but understand that it's driving you to a certain direction. Yeah, it's incredible how surfing, it's this lifestyle, it's a sport, it's all these things, but it gets into your soul and into your bones and it does something more. It starts shaping your mind and, and changing your perception on things. Unquestioned. You know, I, I, I give an example. I have a friend, childhood friend of mine who runs a $3 billion corporation. And this guy is, you know, got money, got the most beautiful house in Laguna Beach. I won't mention where it is, Crescent Bay, but he's got this great house, right? And he's a great guy. And he's a great businessman. But, but if I call him in a meeting and say, hey, Pat, it's going off at El Moro right now. We're talking four to five foot three guys out, guess what he'll do? He'll drop everything. Yeah. He becomes a kid again. He's like six years old. And he's not the, you know, the CEO. He's not the old you know, guy. He's like, eh, he's like a kid. And you're yeah. absolutely correct because I've been depressed kind of relatively with this coronavirus thing, mm-hmm. right? I haven't been able to go in the water because remember they kind of block the ocean or whatever. Yeah. The minute you get in, you feel like you're alive again. Yeah. 
Absolutely. You're right. It gets right into your soul. Yeah. Even uh, for the first few weeks, you know, we really, the messaging was kind of all over the place. And we were hearing like, you know, go outside, get some oxygen, but stay away from people, blah, blah, blah. So I took my stand-up paddleboard one day and I thought, okay, I'm going to go in the water. But then the, the barrier was the parking lots would all be closed at the parks and whatnot. So once I kind of found my little secret entryway under the bridge, that was just life-changing. Just to be able to get out there on the water, go for a paddle, that was very therapeutic. That's fantastic. I heard, I don't know if it's a true story, but people boating in to either lower trestles or other places like Mal, you know, not Malibu, but boating in and being allowed because they came in from the ocean. And the oh, guy that came wow. in from the land, like they caught him, you know, yeah. either got a fine or a ticket. You may have remembered the guy that got arrested at Malibu, you know, wow. like four or five months ago. He was going. Okay. And he just had to have it, you know. And so they, they put him in shackle. I mean, they, they, they handcuffed him. But I was watching Malibu with nobody out. You know, wow. that's interesting because Tom Blake, the guy named, I think his name's Sam Reed, were the first people to actually surf now. Mm. And they had walked up, you know, from Santa Monica because it was a private house, you know, private ranch. Can you imagine getting Malibu by yourself? Back no, there? yeah. So this would have been like a snapshot of history almost. That's it. That's it. And you can imagine what they must have seen. Now, I have had glimpses of this. A friend of mine, Pat Vogue, was a doctor. He had his, his property up at the ranch. You may have heard of the Hollister and the Bixby Ranch, which is okay. 40 miles north of Santa Barbara. Well, his dad worked for the Bixby Ranch, which has worked Coho and Percos and governments, which are three great waves. Coho and Percos breaks on the South Swell. Well, we were out there by ourselves because we get to stay at the Avalone Shack. So imagine you got four to six foot waves, three guys guys out and it's it's mouth wow. but that only happened and then all of a sudden the boat show up and guys show up and it gets crowded yeah amazing so that's really cool to hear about tom blake as you know the first guy in malibu because i'm actually reading a book right now about mickey dora and it really you know seems like that was his place but i mean this is even 20 30 years yeah. before his well, team Unquestioned, you know, even famous movie actors like Ronald Coleman, who started Lost Horizon, was a surfer. And apparently he got Malibu good in the 40s. Wow. And so it didn't, it, it starts to blossom, as you know, in the late 40s, early 50s, when people get access to it. And Mickey Dora, of course, was the kind of the master, along with Lance Carson. And then, of course, later it's Jay Riddle, you know, and then you got Alan Sarlo, and it, it kind of moves up that way. Wow. Yeah, I've been reading some cool books. It's interesting. I'm talking to you, uh, uh, David, about Tom Blake. I'm going to be speaking to another author, uh, David Davis. Uh, but he wrote a book called Waterman, the Duke Kahanamoku story. Oh, it's a great book. Yeah, it was yeah, fantastic. It's a great book. Beautifully done. And it's an amazing guy. Great yeah. bottom surfer, surfer. All. So Voice of the Atom, I tried finding that. Um, but instead I found something called Voice of the Wave. Is that in Surfer's Journal you found or in Surfer's Journal? Yeah. You know, the original is Voice of the Atom. And so what he's, that's originally, I think they probably modified it. Yeah. Because I listen, I watched your video and you had it. So this, the narrator talking, is that the essay he wrote in its entirety? No, no. I wrote that essay. What happened was, I mean, oh, I mean the, uh, the other one you're talking about. The video. Yeah, that's yeah. it. That's it. I mean, okay. you're getting, you're getting the exact quotation. I think I may have included parts of it in the book. I'll put it up here. The Surfer's yeah. Philosophy or whatever. So yeah, it's just a little thin book I did, but I just wanted to get his philosophy out there. Mm -hmm. But you're right. And it's, it's interesting to read Blake's writing because, you know, he was not well-educated. Yeah. He, he did not graduate high school. Guess why? 
because of the Spanish influenza of 1918. He couldn't graduate. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't highly educated in that formal sense, but I think he's highly intelligent in much many other ways. He makes the argument that you get a better education by going to the ocean Mm -hmm. than going to school. Now, that reminds me of Tom Wagoner. You'll like this story. Tom Wagoner's very famous guy in Australia. He makes these Elias surfboards. If you ever get a chance to interview this guy, he's fantastic. Okay. He was a student of mine at UCSD where I was teaching back in the 80s. We had met each other at Carlsbad. And one day he comes into my class and we recognize each other. Oh my God, Tom. Well, he told me something very clear. He says, Dave, what's more important, school or a good South Swell? And I go, there's not even a question about it. I go, it's South Swell. I yeah. go, it's rare. He goes, absolutely. Well, he becomes a lawyer. You're going to like this. He becomes a lawyer. And he says, screw this. So he moves to Australia and promotes a film called Siestas and Las Olas, which is a really classic film. And he moves to Australia, meets his wife. Now he just makes a circle mm. and lives in Hawaii. I mean, he lives in Australia. So he's got the right idea. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I don't want to slam modern education, but... When I think back, a lot of it just, I remember it as sort of memorization of material. Oh, it's, I'm the worst as a professor because I hated school my whole freaking life. Oh, okay. Yeah. My whole life, I hated it. I would ditch to go surfing. I would do all sorts of things. And, and you're absolutely right because what you really want to do with education is inspire people. Mm. to learn outside of the classroom. Because as yeah. the classroom is just, it, come on, it's boring. You can learn more in Google or YouTube in five minutes and listen to some professor. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I, I totally 100% agree. And I, I remember, you know, doing so, math was not my subject at all. And I remember some of those complicated uh, equations and whatnot. And I'm thinking, I can use a calculator to figure this out. why wouldn't I just do that? What scenario am I going to be in that I need to figure out the angle of this triangle or whatever? Well, they they should. Here's the C. I always make this argument. They should make education functional. Functional in the sense that you actually learn something that you might actually use, right? Yeah. It would be, I, for, it sounds stupid, but you give me an example. It would be kind of cool if I knew how to fix an air conditioner. Mm. But they don't do that or fix your car. Like my car yeah. is like a blue box. I mean, I look at it, I call it AAA. And that's, yeah. that's silly. You know, you take, I give an example, we take 12 years of education in England, but I guarantee you 70% of those students don't know how to use the same, even though they've taken school for 12 years. Yeah, that's true. So it's like, you're totally right. I mean, the whole thing's got to be transformed and changed. It won't be because as you pointed out, it's socialization. Mm. It's getting your kids out of the house so somebody can babysit them so you can go. Yeah. My friend and I were talking about this the other day, how we really wish we had had a a strong mentor, like even a guidance counselor approach us at the end of high school or at the beginning of high school and start planting the seed because by the end, we didn't know what we wanted to do. People had been asking us what we wanted to do, but the only options they were really giving us were to become a teacher or, you know, some kind of trade. And I'm thinking like I was in high school in the late 90s. So that would have been, and me, I'm creative, artistic guy. That would have been perfect time to be talking about graphic design and the the internet coming out and some of these things. No, you're absolutely right. You know, I remember, to give you an example, I remember, see, I've been on the internet since 19, sorry how old I am, since 1984. And my students go, it didn't exist then. I go, it did. Yeah. It, it was rudimentary. Wow, yeah. And I remember walking into my class at Mount Sac, it was about early 1992. I said, there's a guy named Tim Berners-Lee out of CERN, Switzerland, who had developed hypertext markup language. He had developed the World Wide Web. Oh, and I said, it's going to change everything. 
So I'm like, boy, you know, I hadn't slept for like 24 hours. I said, I've seen the future. And they're like, yeah. what? I said, screw papers. We're just going to create websites. And they do a website. And I go, we're going to do electronic mail. And they go, what's that? You know, but it transformed. You're absolutely correct. We all got excited because yeah. we could actually learn to do so. So we created like my neural circle website is one of the first of 500 websites ever created in the world. Which is oh, really? I never, oh, I never knew that until my kid checked it. He goes, yeah, Papa. Yeah, you created that thing in 93. I go, yeah, it was all the first of 500. I go, woo. We wow, had no cool. But yeah. then in 2000, when the internet, the bandwidth got larger, you know, a little bigger, I was teaching at Cal State Long Beach, kind of a, near the beach. So I walked in, I go, dude, I've seen the future. And they go, what the hell are you talking about now? I go, we got to make film. This is five years before YouTube. I go, it's going to change everything. I said, screw term papers, websites. We got to make movies, you know, and stuff. But yeah. you're absolutely correct. Then people get excited. And like you notice what you're doing here, you're creating product, yeah. you're creating information that people can share much better. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what is the Neural Surfer all about? <laughs> okay, back 19... 83. This is going to sound a little weird. I used to write a bunch of articles to kind of sell myself to get through graduate school. And there was this newspaper called the Movement Newspaper in Los Angeles. It was actually he headed by a cult leader who eventually robbed my house. We won't go detail there. His name okay. is John Roger Hankins. But it's a fascinating story. Yeah. But I wrote it for it. So I wrote this thing. He wanted me to write about the future of what the, you know, what the future of neuroscience and, and all that. So I wrote this thing. And I talked about the future of uh, quantum mechanics and where, where we're going to head to, you know, virtual reality kind of thing. So I, I came up with this term, which I'm sure I ripped off from somebody called the neural surfer, right? Because oh. it's the brain. And basically what our thoughts are, are writing synapses in the cerebral hemisphere. Oh. Right? In my drip. Yeah. And so I kind of conjoined those two terms. So when I created the website, remember, you know this, you got to come up with a name that you can live with. Mm -hmm. So I came up with a thing called the Neural Surfer. Now, the cool part about this is that the guy who created the A-Team TV show, he had somehow you know, came upon my Neural Surfer website. So he wrote a book called Hollywood Top. He's the founder of the A-Team. He's written a lot of books. Steve Cannon. So he talks about some cult leader who writes a book called the Neural Surfer. Oh, <laughs> But he, it's a, the, great, the great thing about it is he goes, the, the, the book was trash or the movie was terrible. Oh, brother. <laughs> so that's pretty funny. So that's, that term has been around for a while. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I like, I can see the imagery, the combination of the, the world of physics and whatnot mixed with your love for surfing. So that's super cool. Yeah, so just going back to Tom Blake for, for a little bit. So this guy was born in Wisconsin, is that correct? Right, that's right. So that, that was kind of one of the things that piqued my interest in him as well, is that he's originally from the Great Lakes area. And, you know, he becomes this avid swimmer, right? This fantastic champion swimmer. You know, that's where he goes back. You know, something happens to him when when he when he's probably 50, when he has a really bad wife, almost brown, and it changes him. He makes him realize he's not invincible. He realizes that, you know, maybe I have to kind of modify myself. So near the end of his life, as you know, he moves back to Wisconsin, kind of going back to Wisconsin. He had, he had a tough childhood. Man. This guy was more or less abandoned. And uh, so I have a feeling he had to struggle and find himself. You know, he was married once, but only for like, like a year to a very wealthy woman and they divorced. And I think it's because he saw life in a completely different way. This guy, this is where Tom Blake and I think uh, other people have commented on this. This guy basically creates our surfer lifestyle. We are the descendants of Tom because mm. he basically says, screw this. This is one life. Let's figure out how to live this. What's the best way to live? And he goes, live on the ocean, you know, become his best line. I always like is lessen the overhead. Mm. You don't need freaking much. 
And this yeah. guy didn't have much, wow. you know? And so I think that's, that's an interesting point. About Maybe just tell me a little more about, you said the descendants of Tom Blake. So what is it, that lifestyle, and how did he sustain himself through that? Because I've not been able to get a copy of the Pioneer Waterman, I think it's called. It's unbelievable. You mean the Tom Lynch, the, the, the Lynch Gary Lynch's thing? Yeah, the Tom the, Blake book. Oh, it's beautiful. It's Yeah, it's and I just saw that, because I've been Googling everywhere on Amazon Canada. It's like several hundred dollars because it's, you know, in somebody's basement somewhere in Manitoba, probably like one copy. But I saw you guys have some sort of um, museum uh, that I saw yesterday. I got to somehow from your links, actually. And they have it, a soft cover for $40. I That's right. They've reissued it as a soft cover. So it'd be cheaper for people to buy. I have a couple of the first editions, you know, beautifully bound. He just did a oh, okay. job. And I mean, this guy really went beyond. And, and in fact, he's written to me a couple of times and very nicely. In fact, he's the one who wrote Surfer's Journal to have them excerpt my book partially in the Surfer's Journal, which I was stoked. Oh, like cool. The journal, right? Yeah. And, but he basically we're all a footnote to this guy because his book is magnificent and he did all the research. And what he found out was that Blake, you know, he never really had a steady job outside of being a life. And that was kind of his, that was the thing he would fall back on. Okay. He would sometimes be a stunt, you know, guy. He would do uh, stunts. He sometimes modeled when he was really young. He was a great looking guy, but he never really had much money. I mean, this guy lives in a freaking car most of the time or in a small little apartment or when he was living in Wyatt, there's a story about him living in a little boat in the Alamoana boat harbor getting, you know, some ice cream at night, some bread, and then going back and no TV, you know, and like no radio. And yeah. this guy was a, was a completely different man. He's his own self. He's a great, he's really into health too. Mm. He's part of that 1920s, 1930s. I don't know if you know this, but in the San Fernando Valley, there was this movement called the, the Health Boys or the Health Nuts or Nature Boys. Uh, Gypsy Boots was one of them back in the 40s, 50s. And they all wanted to just live off the land. You know, like get back to nature. It's like the beginning yeah. of the organic movement. Okay. Tom Blake is one of those guys. Yeah, I get weird looks for being a vegetarian now in 2020. I'm sure you experienced that oh sometimes. Oh, my God. Back, it's, my girlfriends hated it, man. Like, what? Yeah. Are you a, you're a member of a cult? Yeah, now, really. Vegan, which is even worse. Wow, but yeah. My son Kelly turned vegan. My sons have been vegetarian since birth. And one day, Kelly comes to me. He goes, Papa, we got to go vegan. I go, what? I gotta do, now I got to go vegan? I got to give up. Yeah. Pizza, you know? yeah. But no, you're right. And Blake, let's go back to Blake. I mean, think about it. 1920s. This guy turns vegetarian. Imagine <laughs> what it was like for him in World War II, where he served. Oh, he wow. eat mashed potatoes and some lettuce and stuff. But he said food was pretty good. He was up, they got stationed up in Alaska. Okay. But it must have tough. Imagine the looks he must have. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the other thing, you know, related to Tom Blake, keep on him, is also the notion of the beachcomber, the beach bum. If you look at any movie of the 50s, including Gidget and that really terrible movie called Ride the Wild Surf from 1963 or 4, the one thing they didn't want to be known as is a bum. Mm. Like, you got to get a job. It's America, man. You got to work. Well, you know, Blake is basically saying, well, I don't know about that. Maybe work is subservient to surfing. Yeah. 
you know, maybe the lifestyle is more important than you trying to work eight five every day. I like this idea of I like this idea of monetizing your experiences. You know, rather than than going after the gold, you know, going after experiences, and that's your accumulation of wealth. That's good because then, you, as you point out, you're going to be really good at whatever you do because you love it. You have yeah. passion for it. You know, Tim Berners Lee, who who developed the World Wide Web. He said he made two mistakes when he created it. One was links that break that people don't know. Like, you know, you create a link and it breaks. And he wished there was a feedback system. The second thing he said was that he wished he had embedded monetization on the net. So that let's imagine I click onto your video and I watch it. And then maybe I give you one tenth of a cent or a cent, whatever I do. But it kind of distributes, democratizes the economy. Mm. Instead, as Jaron Lanier has pointed out in a wonderful book, You Are Not a Gadget, basically you got the super rich and the super broke. Yeah. <laughs> the middle class is gone because you're not really making that much money on it. Yeah. So you have people like Facebook, you know, Zuckerberg and all those. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even since I launched, you know, my brand and this podcast, I'm not rolling in the dough or anything, but the, su- the success in my mind of just getting to talk to people like yourself and these new fascinating experiences, it's so rewarding. Like I felt like I'm on this higher frequency the last, you know, month or so. Yeah. Because think what you're doing. You're, you're like, you're, you're creating content number one that will last and that is anybody can access worldwide anytime and it's atemporal which means i don't have to like get on at nine o'clock and oh my god i missed it like in the old days you'd want to watch endless summer on tv back in the 70s because it would only come out like once a month or you know every two months and you'd have to be like get get over here come on get ready you're gonna miss the first scene now it's like so what you're doing by doing this kind of thing is you're creating content but also it's content there's another way to look at this which seeds itself into the future mm-hmm. so that it, you may not see the benefit right now, let's say financially, but maybe later on it will. That's you never true, know what yeah. Think of Jamie O'Brien, for instance. Jamie O'Brien has a pretty popular uh, vlog. And I'm sure at first it wasn't that popular. Now it's pretty big. Mm. Or Joe Rogan. Think about Joe Rogan. Yeah, Joe absolutely. Rogan. Yeah. 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 Uh, maybe I'll aim for, you know, the Tom Blake of, of the Great Lakes, you know. <laughs> That's it. Leave yeah, some like kind it. of lasting um, something behind. Yeah, no, you, you already are. That's what's yeah, cool. yeah, absolutely. Um, so you were talking about Tom Blake as this archetype. <clears throat> and it's really interesting because I think about that, you know, I got into surfing in the late 90s. And so by that time, there is so much content, so many examples to see um, that there really wasn't a lot of ingenuity on my part, except for the fact that I started surfing on the Great Lakes, which was at that time, still very peculiar, and now is peculiar, but it's definitely grown a lot and and continues to grow. But the whole, like you're saying, the beach bum idea, the Spicoli, like there were all these templates already to sort of take pieces of what works for you. I mean, Point Break is like the holy grail, you know, for me, right? That was I love Point Break. First one, second one sucked, but the first one was great. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's fascinating to think of this guy who carved that out before anyone else, like you're saying, and so many other people followed followed his path a bit. That's right. In, in the resistance he must have gotten, he must have been so pressured to have a stable job yeah. and not to live in Hawaii, where he's probably not making much money and he's probably surfing most of the time. And yet, think about the, what he's contributed. He's changed everybody. Mm-hmm. Every surfer on this planet has been influenced by Tom Blake, especially yeah. with the fin on the board. 
because mm -hmm. otherwise we're just you know, doing the lie stuff. But, but you're right. And, and it's kind of interesting what you mentioned about the role models, because I was brought up, you know, late, well, I was born in 56, surfed in the 60s and 70s. And it was different back. Surfing was kind of like kind of edgy. You know, people thought you were like a bad boy, you know, like you're kind of a, you know, now it's become so professionalized, mm -hmm. so accepted yeah. that it's much more integrated. And I think the number one reason, the number one reason is that these uh, yuppies had kids okay. and their daughters surf and uh -huh. localism, because localism sucks. Localism was terrible in the 60s and 70s. Like we would go to a certain place like Silver Strand or uh, even like Point Doom. I mean, we, you know, we, I used to surf the colony in some, at Malibu. And some of these little rat kids would shoot you with BB guns. Like, you know, <laughs> like come on. Wow. So, I mean, localism just sucks. I mean, yeah. but that's what it's gotten better because of that. Okay. Yeah, because nowadays, if you're a surfer, you know, you could be commended. Oh, that's a good health. Uh, there's lots of health benefits. You're being physical. You're freeing your mind. Like, that's a great pastime to do. That's right. But I'm thinking, you know, back to that time frame, it, w it was actually frowned upon. Like, that's right, because you were a beach bomb and you can only do yeah. this more. And the second thing is the drugs in the 60s and 70s. Surfers were known as guys taking drugs. Okay. That's just, you know, I remember surfing the ranch. I won't get my friends in trouble here, but I don't take any drugs because I was kind of some weird kid, you know? So we're at surfing the ranch, right? We're at uh, Coho. And it's like mm -hmm. four to six foot and going off. I mean, just in fact, well, my, my friends are having this like drug party on, on the yeah. beach and they're blowing it. I mean, the surf is really good and they're just like getting high on Coke or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You tell a story in your book actually about um, a teacher you had was sort of really putting down surfing and and was uh, hyping poetry, I believe it was. And and so tell us about that. What was that scenario? I'm in, I'm in a class, one of those English classes, you know, English 1A or 1B, you know, one of those required English classes that you've taken, even though you've taken English, like we mentioned, 12 years. Yeah. And I'm sitting there and all of a sudden he starts to pontificate about poetry, you know, what, what contributions, you know, Keats or Shakespeare made, which is great, don't get me wrong. But then all of a sudden he starts to put down surfers. Like a waste of time, and what could they've done? To, and I, and, and I interrupted the guy. I go, wait a second, dude. Have you ever watched somebody on a wave, which manifests from thousands of miles away from like New Zealand, catching this energy, and all of a sudden dancing on this energy at the right time? It's better than a ballet. It's harder than a ballet. Mm. It's beautiful. And anybody who sees the aesthetics of it, because all surfers know. Like yeah. I think it was in a movie. I forget the guy's name. Randy Rarick said. Nobody goes to a tennis and looks at the tennis court and goes, oh, my goodness. <laughs> but surfers, like I'm looking at Bali. I don't know if you know this. I'm surfing. Bali is going off. And I'm looking at it. And there's like four guys in the water. Wow. I'm mesmerized by looking at the yeah. waves and the manifestation of it. So you're right. So this English professor didn't get it. And he was caught, again, in his own parochial myopic vision. And the great thing about what Blake has done is opened this up to the aesthetic. Yeah. On one hand, the idea of um, people not knowing the joy of being in the tube or that sensation of riding a wave on one hand i want to spread that stoke all over the place on the other hand i like to safeguard it a bit as to not kind of over pollute it and and dilute it i guess you could say with everybody doing it and it becoming as common as say tennis or something a yeah. little more if you live at Huntington beach it's as common as <laughs> more common than tennis yeah and, but but no you're on the right interesting that's why some people don't like these artificial wave pools mm. because it's going to open up the whole the Pandora's box. But I'm kind of more pro it because 
I also have a place in the desert, which is really hot. Mm. And Slater's going to build, apparently, his company's going to build one of those wave pools. I'm yeah. Be the problem is it's prohibitively expensive. Yeah. Do you know how much it costs to rent out Slater's wave pool right now? It's $50 no. for a day. Wow. $1,000. Now, my friend Pat, you know, the guy that the billionaire, I mean, the guy who runs that company, he's always going, call Miller on the phone. Tell him I'll pay the 50 grand. And we'll take my airplane, we'll ride. I go, 50,000, we'll go to Kauai. We'll go to Boise oh, wow. instead. But, That's incredible. You know, yeah. So, but if it gets cheaper, now there are cheaper places, like one's yeah. Palm Springs in Arizona. But what you say, which is very interesting, is that I think all surfers kind of feel that, kind of protect, maybe it's environmental. Like, it's, mm-hmm. not, it's so precious. Let's not, let's not screw that. Yeah. Surfing was this sort of quiet voice in my ear that was teaching me through, like you're saying, through nature, that no one else was telling me that I learned through the ability of connecting with the water and learning that there's something more going on here. You know, the way these waves are generated, the fact that I can literally walk on water almost, which apparently has only been done by one person. (laughs) Well, you're connecting. I I like what you're doing. You're saying, look, surfing and spirituality kind of connect. Yeah. It's just a natural thing. If you surf, regardless of your religious background, regardless of any religion, you're going to have a spiritual bent just by the way the ocean teaches you. And I think yeah, that, yeah. You know, and so this idea that we're all plugged into this nine to five, and if you're not, you're a bum. You know, some people, they say, oh, the machines are coming. They're going to take over all our jobs. We're screwed. And I can easily buy into that and go, oh, yeah, you know, that's not good. We need jobs. But then wait a minute, let the machines do the jobs. That'll free us up for other things, right? So we're locked into this way of thinking, but it doesn't have to be that way. There's so much more potential. Well, let's play out a couple of good points. Number one, imagine doing what you're doing right now when there was no video. That is, you had there's no digitization. You had to use regular film, 16 millimeter. Good luck. It cost, it's prohibitive. Think about going back to a typewriter, which you probably don't remember, but I remember. Yeah. White out. You had to clean. It's, it sucked. So you're absolutely correct. It's liberated us to do more if we do it the right way. Now, it's funny you say that there's a book called Darwin Among the Machines that was written by Samuel Butler, also what's called Erwin. This is back in like 1862, 1863. In 1862, he says, kill the machines. They're going to take over because he's all upset. And I'm thinking to myself, Jesus, everybody's <laughs> scared about these machines taking over the planet. No, no. Look at it positive. Look at yeah. it like in, in a good way. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you, you got me on one story. I think it's kind of funny because you're talking about Jesus. I was brought up in a Catholic school. You know, I went to Mm-hmm. Roman Catholic schools my whole whole life until I got booted out my senior year. We won't talk detail, but I uh, there's one great story. I'm about 15 or 16 years old, and I'm hitchh- hitchhiking back in the day when you could hitchhike. Hitchhiking now is basically you want to commit suicide, but forget yeah. it. So I'm hitchhiking. We want to go to the beach, right? So this guy picks us up in his truck, and we're going. He goes, hey, man, where do you want to go? I go, Santa Monica. And he goes, well, are you guys Christian? I go, yeah, man. I've been baptized. I've been confirmed, Xavier, love Jesus. I even spoke in tongue. He looks at me, and he goes, he goes, no, you're not. Catholics are not Christian. What? And he goes, yeah, I, I feel bad. He goes, I can't give you a ride to the beach. I go, why not? Wow. He goes, because I feel like I'm driving you to hell because you haven't accepted Jesus as your personal Oh, my goodness. So we're like, oh, okay. Okay. And the swell's going off. You got to keep in mind, it's like four to five foot. So the guy, so we said, well, what, what do we have to do? He says, well, get in the back of the truck. I'll open up the Bible. And if you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I'll drive you to the beach. And of course we did. And the waves were good. And so wow. I, I, I'm covered on every level. There you go. You're, you're safe. You got the fail safe.
a few years ago, I was really kind of down and out and, and had been kind of dragged through the mud. And I was, you know, coming up for air. And in that process, I found yoga, and uh, which was sort of really just on a whim. I was seeing a naturopath and, and she said, have you tried yoga? And I said, no. And she said, well, what would you rather do, a scientific yoga or spiritual yoga? Well, science bores the hell out of me. So I'll go with the spiritual, you know. So I started going to uh, to yoga classes and Kundalini specifically. And at that time, it was fascinating because I was hearing these things for the first time, but more so than what I'd heard preachers say, a preacher would really have to convince me of something, you know. Whereas when I started hearing these yoga teachings, they just connected. I was like, this is right. Like this, I can feel in my bones, this idea of one oneness, unity, we're all connected. That really kind of uh, changed that for me. Um, you know, tell us a little more. So you're saying that you have all this experience in philosophy and religion and whatnot. And uh, I mentioned Kundalini Yoga. And so currently, actually, I'll, I'll just back up a little bit and say, when I found Kundalini Yoga and the mantras and the breath and the teachings, it just all resonated with me. And I kept hearing these, um, Yogi Bhajan is the guy who brought it over and, and hearing different things about him. Um, but I didn't really have any reference material. For. And so everything sounded good. And then I I liked it so much that I decided I'm going to do my teacher training because I want to learn more. I want to know all about the technology and the inner workings. And I and this has helped me so much connect with myself and do some healing. I want to share it with other people. So I started doing the teacher training and it was very soon into that, that we were watching videos um, of the leader, Yogi Bhajan. And, you know, I don't want to say this way or that way, but for me personally, it was not resonating with me. I was finding this character to be very uh, obtrusive and uh, I couldn't connect with him. I was never at any point was I like, this is my guru. No. And in fact, one day in class, I spoke up about and I, I basically said the question, I'm like, look, everything I read in the book sounds incredible. I'm like, but when I watch this guy on video or I hear some of these behind the scenes stories, there's some alarm bells going off for me. And I was basically told on one hand, it, the first answer was nice. Derek, you don't need to, we're not asking you to accept anyone as your Messiah, nothing like that, right? This is all about you and your experience. But at the same time, they have a really great job of spinning things on you and making you feel crazy. Like that's, what was the wording again? That's you looking at yourself in the mirror, you know, blah, 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 all these things. And, and I was buying some of it. I was like, you're right. What's wrong with me? Why am I so resistant to this? But I only had to go to a couple more classes, watch a few more videos. And I'm like, no, I'm absolutely set on this. I know where I stand with this. I'm going to simply take what's good from this for me and not the rest of the, the garbage. So I'm really fascinated to learn from you who specialized in cults and you've actually, not to say this is a cult, that currently, so currently Yogi Bhajan, there is a book that was written, um, actually I have it right here. 
called White Bird in a Golden Cage. And she basically talks about some of the things you've spoken about with other leaders, um, you know, doing sexual favors and keeping it secret and et cetera, et cetera. So he's not around, obviously, anymore to defend himself. And, you know, I read the book and I personally believe what she's saying i don't know why someone would make that up but i try to give him the benefit of the doubt and be neutral at the moment because they are doing an investigation and i think the organization's doing a pretty good job you know not jumping to conclusions while also supporting people in the process um so that's what's going on he's being accused of some sexual things and uh, you know, using his power. Um, but nothing at this point is proven, set in stone. But, you know, a lot of people have spoken out, multiple people. And so I think there's quite a quite a bunch of validity. And also, it's such a small circle that I've spoken to some people who are fairly, you know, rubbed shoulders with this guy pretty well. And they've told me some things that seem pretty creepy. And sometimes things that I just think are flat out wrong. Like I've heard people tell me, oh, he would just yell and go up and down one side of me. And I'm thinking, well, why would you allow that? Why? You're on the right track. Why is that okay? I don't, I already have a dad. I don't need another one. You know? <laughs> no, I, listen, I, listen, you got, whatever I'm going to say, I got to be real clear here because I know Yogi Bhajan. You know, I, I met him back in 73, I think when he had a birthday party at some place. And I knew his main disciple early on, a guy named Father Yod, who started the, like the Source Cult restaurant. I knew them. Uh, let's be real clear. Uh, Yogi Bhajan is a scam artist. Let me tell you a couple of things that a lot of people don't know. One is that he, he was never appointed to be a Kundalini yoga master. All that's made up by him. He comes up, he actually creates a fake name of a guru that never existed to cover his association with a guy named Santhavirsa Singh and another guru who actually taught him yoga. He, as you know, worked as, as a custom agent in, in uh, Delhi, comes to, to America in 1969, I think. And, you know, he, you know, that's when it's 1969. Everything's out in the open. There's all these different yoga teachers, Satchitananda, Swami Muktananda. So he comes out and he, you know, he becomes really successful because he's very well organized and he's, you know, huge. The guy's 6'4", right? He's a big Sikh guy. And so he brings this thing in and he, teaches kundalini yoga which i used to practice when i was young like 15 i loved it it works it's yeah. great you know it's a great don't get me wrong it's a great practice but the problem is he creates a cult let's be real clear a cult in terms of serving him like you said he's got anger issues there's no doubt he's hit on too many women that's just like that's been well known for a decade and he was self-serving and he made stuff up that's not you know most of these cult leaders i gotta be real clear with you is most of these guys are grandiose they make up claims about themselves that there's no evidence for yeah. And in the disciple, like you pointed out, has to kind of accept it. Otherwise, uh, I guess it's a bad reflection on you because yeah. you have bad karma because you can't see his spirituality. Personally, it's all bullshit. Yeah. I've been to India many times. That's my forte. You know, I've exposed a lot of religious cults. And I'm not against it. I do yoga myself. As you know, I'm a vegan. I think yeah. all that stuff's fantastic. Yeah. The problem is we've elevated these gurus to in stupid heights. I mean, they're just human beings. They got the same foibles that you have. And what you did is the right way. You looked at it and said, I like this. I don't like this. That's yeah. smart. And that's what we should do with everything, including teachers, 
surfers, windsurfers, kneeboarders, body surfers, and gurus. We should do the same thing, but we don't because it's cult. So the word cult is thrown around a lot. So what is the definition yeah, yeah. I, I gotta, of a yeah, cult? Very good, very good. I got to back up a couple of cents. First of all, everything can be defined as a cult, right? I mean, like surfing is a cult, teaching at Mount Sac, you're a cult leader. It means it comes, there's a couple of definitions. There's two ways to use it. One is it means anything by which you focus your attention on a person, a doctrine or a belief system, okay? Anything okay. that's to yourself. The second definition is the one that most people are bantering around, which means you're in a weirdo group and you're okay. being abused. And the funny thing <laughs> is that everybody thinks they're not in a cult, right? Like, okay. I'm, let's say I was brought up Catholic, and I yeah. think, well, Catholicism is like a real religion. Well, if you're not a Catholic and you look at a cult, he's in the world's biggest cult, right? Yeah, yeah, and really. So, so it depends on how you define it. So my way of saying cultic is, is, is different. It means this. How willing is the guru or the leader or the religion to accept viable criticism? And how well do they react to it? Mm. In my critical thinking class, I oftentimes say the ability to be a good critical thinker is your ability to admit to being wrong. Now, I would love to see these gurus right, simply say, you know, I screwed up. I'm a human being. I, I shouldn't have gotten mad. I apologize. Yeah, you're right. I thought that girl was really hot and I wanted to use my yogic powers. They don't do that. They claim they're celibate. They claim, you know, they're not, they're doing it for tantric reasons. I'm transmitting yeah. subtle energies, you know, some bullshit. That's the problem. Yeah. Just be human. Yeah, absolutely. So. I will say, I will say one thing in favor of me. He ran a really good restaurant called the uh, Golden Temple Conscious Cookery. Oh, okay. Avenue near Fairfax in LA. It was fantastic. He had this thing called the Bajan Banquet, which was really a little high expensive for me to buy. I used to get the chili, but it was a great restaurant, but it was weird. You know, as you know, it's it's really the healthy, happy, holy organization that he developed where yeah. everybody has to wear the white turbans. And, yeah. and the Kundalini yoga thing has become huge. I mean, that's, you know, worldwide now. Yeah. But it's, it's a very specific form of yoga that he developed. I got to be honest with this scandal happening. I actually feel I've seen some of my friends completely drop out of it, which I think is too bad because there are some good things. But I also understand, especially most of them are women. And so, you know, I can imagine that that would be even harder experience for them. Um, But for me, I have felt a real sense of freedom in the fact that, okay, now I can actually make this my own. Because it was starting to feel like it was all some sort of tribute ceremony to him, you know? And it's kind of like the Bible. Like, what's the last line in the Bible is something like, if you change the words of, of this, you're going to hell, right? Like, very good point. That That's was kind of, yes. yeah, that was kind of like what he was saying was, you know, this is in its purity. Don't change it. Don't do anything. And so it just felt like I'm just worshiping this dude. That's not what I got into this for. I got into this because it, created it sort of just opened me up to creativity good things started happening i started feeling better i was able to think broader so with all this happening i felt a real freedom in the sense that now i can do what i want i don't have to wear the stupid hat thing i don't have to do this i don't have to do that um yeah it's great actually. Now, you know what you, you you touched on something i wrote a little article i think it was a book called the projective art and the argument that i make is that what they we're doing is we're giving all our psychic energy all our energy over to this guru guy or this teacher and he benefits by it. Mm. There's, there's a really cool guru I once met when I was on a research project out of India in 78. His name is Fakir Chand. He'd been meditating for 70 years and he was a really cool guy and he basically told the secret. He said, look, the guru does nothing. Mm. It's all your projection. Mm. 
what the guru then does is take your projection for his own benefit. And you think, oh, you think the guru's doing this. Like he gives me powers. He's got, none of that happens. It's all in your own mind. Now, what you said was really interesting. You've been liberated yeah. from projecting onto Yogi Bhajan or whoever mm. the guru is, realizing, wait a second, I don't need all this. This guy doesn't need, well, I don't need this guy. And, you yeah. don't. and the, the, the problem is it's a two-way street. The disciple fuels the guru. The guru fuels the disciple's ego. And it gets in this dyad. And it's, it's I've written a lot on this. I think yeah. the whole concept <clears throat> has to be changed. Yeah. You know? I just think it's bad. Yeah, and and it really contradicted the teachings, much like a lot of Christianity, you know, thou shalt not kill, but oh, it's okay to send our boys to war. Um, you know, th there was some contradictory things, especially in terms of what they called the Aquarian Age. And we're getting away from this Piscean era of, you know, top down and authority telling you what to do. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, that sounds to me like exactly what you're doing to us. You're trying to keep us in our place and, and whatnot. So it was very mixed messaging. Yeah. And, and, and you know what? It's almost, I won't say universal, but I, in almost all the cults or religions, doesn't matter what the movement is, I've noticed that tendency. Okay. The tendency you're thinking. <laughs> It's not like it's unique to Yogi Bhajan. I mean, yeah. I exposed a guy named John Roger of MSIA. Then I did Ekankar and then Satya Sai Baba, who's really famous in India, is now dead. Adi Da was another New York guru, all these guys. And they do the same damn thing. And I found there's three things they want, basically, a corrupt guru. He wants sex, if he's a guy. He wants money and he wants power. Mm. And we've, you know, just look at those. Three. You're going to find it. Now, if the guru is honest, he's going to be transparent, which means he doesn't want you to follow. He wants you to follow yourself eventually yeah yeah they use that language yeah but even like you're saying this the sexual stuff and all the issues we've had with catholic priests like it's it's rampant this for some reason it's for well just play it out i i, I gotta be real blunt here you know i brought up catholic i even taught at catholic religions for five years at catholic schools i mean so i can say this think about it you're taking a young male 16 17 18 19 20 years old mm -hmm. you're putting him in a seminary you make a joke here but i won't you put him into a seminary and they have alcohol mm. and they have sexual problems so it's mostly self-selected my friend who was a catholic priest back in the day said they're all gay until proven otherwise okay. what he meant by that was it's you know if you have a sexual problem right let's imagine yeah. you're and you're brought up in the 50s and 60s and you're not supposed to be gay yeah. and you're catholic and you feel terrible about it you're going oh shit what are you going to do well i'm going to join the priesthood well you join the priesthood and guess what you've now surrounded yourself with a bunch of other guys we got the same problem. Wow, yeah. So what do you think is going to happen? Yeah. This is, it's, it's sick. It's ridiculous. If, a, if, a rel if an elementary school had as many pedophiles as the Catholic Church does, it would be shut down. Wow. No school. Yeah. yeah, it's ridiculous. It's insane. It's it's nuts. So my story, I was seeing these, you know, things come up and I only did my teacher training like last year or the one before. So I'm actually really glad that this has come out in the open now, just as I'm really basically starting to teach because I don't have now I don't have to worry about all that format and stuff. It's it's out there. I can really do my own thing. So I'm really uh, I'm really happy about that. But why and how do other people not wake up? Like, why did Charles Manson get followers? Why did the Kool-Aid guy have super successful businessmen giving him money and leaving their entire lives behind? That's a million dollar question. I, I have a, an answer. It's not totally fulfilling, but it's this. I came up with a concept. It's not really mine, but I, 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 it's called meaning equivalent. Just play out. Remember the movie? I don't know if you saw it. The Hunger Games when it first came out. It's, it's okay. Remember, everybody's got to kill each other 
in order to win the game, right? Yeah. You know, in a weird way, look at, you're on a planet with 7 billion people. In this, and the only way anybody can survive is you got to kill something, you know, whether it's a vegetable, an animal or whatever. Now, it's a pretty horrid place. Now, how do you survive such a, you know, how do you survive it? Well, the answer is you look for meaning or purpose or a higher reason to, to continue living. So I made this argument that any meaning is better than no meaning, even if such meaning is nonsense, provided that that meaning makes you live an extra day. Mm. Give an example. If you're on a roller coaster, and let's imagine the roller coaster goes for 30 minutes. Okay? Imagine you're going to be 30 minutes. And before you get on the roller coaster, you get locked in, you look to the guy and say, hey, when does this roller coaster end? The guy goes, well, we haven't finished it yet. You go into a flame of fire and die at the end. <laughs> I know there's a couple of guys who come on, Lance, it's a good roller coaster. Man up. <laughs> the point being is, if you're going to be on a roller coaster for 30 minutes, let's play it out. How are you going to stay on it? Most of us would do what? We would jump. Yeah. Unless, there are two things, unless you thought there was some meaning or purpose or some guiding light or, second one, you got distracted. Like you looked away, there's in and out burger over there, right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. This sounds weird, but think about the person in the cult, okay? It gives them a sense of purpose and meaning. Maybe their life was going nowhere. Mm -hmm. And if they had to give up that meaning or purpose, they're going to be existentially lost, like back into the abyss. I know this because I've met a number of members of cults who know the guy's a fraud, like they're full on know he's a fraud. And they go back in and I go, what the fudge? And they go, well, I miss my friends. And I had, a, I was like the vice president in the, in the organization and that's it. So we're all wow. kind of chumps for meaning. Yeah. Everybody's searching for acceptance, I guess. Wow. So what sparked your interest in in cults and religion and philosophy. Yeah, I, I'm a weird kid. I, I I think the story goes, I'm 11 years old and I'm practicing Hatha yoga at 11, mm -hmm. probably because <laughs> I was watching Richard Hittleman on, on TV. And one day I, I was really into baseball and I walked into the North Hollywood library and I looked at this book said autobiography of a yogi. And I thought it was about Yogi uh, Berra, you know, Yogi Berra, the famous catcher, right? Okay, so yeah. I take the book home. It's all about these weird ass guru stuff. Yeah. Like, wow, this is like really weird shit. And I love I know you know I loved it. So I actually had a fascination with that from a very young. And when I was in college, I had done this critical term paper on a group called Eckenkar, and they attempted to sue me for like lots of money because they didn't want the term paper to come out because the founder of the religion was lying, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. And that eventually led me to go to India on a research project because I was pretty good at tracking down these weird, obscure gurus, you know. So that was my job. I went to North India and I would travel throughout North India. For Professor Jurgismar, who was at Berkeley at the time, and we created he created a book called Ravaswami Reality, which was published by Princeton University Press. My job was to go throughout India and meet all these gurus and yogis and stuff. So that's so you've already admitted that I see the validity in this and this and that. I think it's great. So what is your intention behind exposing cults or when you go into these situations? You know, it's funny you say that. It's good you say that. I, it was never my intention to expose anything, to be honest mm. with you. What happened was you just do the research like you did. Like you did a little background research on Yogi Bhajan, right? Yeah. So I did a little background research on my term paper because I was required to do it. Well, I found out the guy had plagiarized most of his writings, like word by word. I found okay. out he was born in 1909, not 1922. I found out that he was married before. I found out that he'd never gone to, you know, that kind of. So I just wrote that stuff up, right? Well, that becomes an expose. Not because I'm exposing it, but because I'm giving information that's actually factual. Same thing happened with John Roger, something never, ever intend to expose anybody. I got my own foibles. I don't want to be exposed either. It's yeah. just if you do research that's kind of counter to the group, they yeah. see it. So do you feel that it's important then to reveal the truth 
for those people who are seeking uh, yeah, or yeah, are you it, trying it, to yeah. rescue people in any yeah, no, way? I'm not, or? Like, see, I'm not one of those deprogrammer guys. I'm not okay. that guy. I'm not, I'm, I, I think people should do whatever they freaking want. Believe yeah. what you want. As long as you're not doing it on my front lawn and cares, right? Yeah. Um, an example, I'll give you the best example I know. I'm teaching at Mount Sac, and one of my students raises her hand. And she says, my dad is a follower of Ekonkar, which is one of the groups I critique. She goes, I want to give him your book to read. I looked at her and go, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. He's happy. You don't want to give him my book. Don't do it. I said, don't bug him. He's got his own life. Let him go. But guess what she does? She puts the book right next to his. She comes to me the next day or two days later. I have to drop your class. My dad read your, you know, it doesn't like you, thinks you're the negative power from the beginning of time or whatever. Yeah. Go, God, just let people believe what they want as long as they're, if they come to me, of course, I'll tell them, but I never go out of my way. Yeah. Everybody What's that called in Scientology? You would be called a, there's a, like, an, like uh, it's not an unwanted person, but there's some kind of, some word for it. I forgot. Some kind of abbreviation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, I'll tell you one little story about Scientology that's kind of funny. I was given a talk, a lecture at the London School of Economics. This is back in 1993. And I, I tend not to read off the script. You know, I just want to talk. You know. So I start talking about Scientology, about L. Ron Hubbard was a science fiction writer. He founded Dianetics, you know, wrote the book, it was popular, but he got sued for it. So great piece of religion. And I kind of said he never got his PhD in physics because he didn't even pass the first physics course at Georgetown. Having no idea that the president of Scientology was in the audience when I'm going off on wow. Scientology. <laughs> and the guy comes up to me at the very end, president, whatever his name was, and he goes, uh, you're on our list. Oh, <laughs> no. So I get a flood of Scientology materials. They send me like, you know, every year a bunch of books and Stuff like that. So. Oh, you're on their their newsletter. Well, no, I'm on their list two ways. They're, they're watching me, like okay. find out what I write, and yeah. then of course they're trying to influence me. Okay, I was gonna say you don't want to be on that hit list. Yeah, no, I've been on too many of those cult lists. I've been had to death threats. I've had people try to threaten to kill me. I one time I got death threats for a year on my phone. Wow, not, unreal. Well, this is the first podcast that I get into some real, real <laughs> deep stuff. I'm. <laughs> Hoping uh, yeah, the, I don't have to. The server audience is already lost. They go. They've already paddled out. They go. That's yeah, true. Yeah. Yeah. They'll probably enjoy this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, I don't have to move up to the third floor. <laughs> That's good. So this is a huge topic. It's just basically one word. I don't even know how to ask you this question. I just want to say consciousness. What does that mean? What are your thoughts? Oh, wow. That's my, you know, that's my obsession. You know, okay. Mike and I. My wife studied with a guy named B.S. Ramachandran. You may have heard of him from UCSD. He's very famous. You ever heard of the phantom limb when somebody all of a sudden gets their hand cut off or amputated? They sometimes feel pain in their mm. hand, even if they don't have a hand. Gotcha. And the key is because there's a modeling system of the brain. So I've been really interested in the origin of consciousness. You know, is it physical? Is it transphysical? And uh, the, the minute you say that word, it's the, it's the, it's the, the million dollar question. The 21st century, that's the question. And there's lots of theories, as you know, dualist theories, monist monist theories. My conjecture is called the remainder conjecture. My argument is we should reverse engineer the brain, understand the brain physiologically as much as we can. It's 86 billion neurons. It's different synapses, axions, and dendrites. And then see, can you reproduce consciousness in an artificial substrate? Which means is, is consciousness substrate neutral? It sounds a little weird, but you know, can you like mimic I'm thinking of Alan Turing in 1950. Can you mimic consciousness in a computational machine? Now, I'm not saying we can't. 
Mm -hmm. I'm simply saying that's the way to do it because then at least you will eliminate whether it's physical or not. Because at this stage, we don't really know. Is it, you know, like I've been influenced by the church ones at UCSD. They're hardcore physicals. They make the argument that the brain is consciousness. Consciousness is the brain. When you're dead, you're dead. Now, the reason I mention that is that Tom Wagoner, going back to surfing, he was taking her class and he was taking my class at the same time. Back in those days, I was more romantic. Consciousness is beyond the body, you know, kind of stuff. And he would come in and tell me Churchill's argument. And I would rip her and say, oh, yeah, she's full of shit. He would go back to Churchill and she, she would say, who is that idiot teaching your class? Well, I hate to say it. She was right. I was wrong because her approach is much more scientific and has much more uh, benefits in terms of trying to resolve the problem. Now, I'm not saying it is because we don't know, but in either case, it's cool. In either case. So we are what we eat. Are we what we think? I would imagine all of us, right? I mean, like, for instance, if you take uh, too much food, you know, eat too many Twinkies or something, you feel a certain way. Uh, you know how you feel after surfing, very biochemical. And mm -hmm. so I was in our thoughts, as you know, I have a friend of mine who's now dead, Peter McWilliams. He wrote a wonderful book called You Cannot Afford the Luxury of a Negative Thought. Mm -hmm. And he argued that the thinking or thoughts, and you know this, I mean, like, that's why we get depressed. Yeah. I got to think about Trump. I got to think about COVID. Yeah. <gasps> right. I think a lot of people are depressed that way. Either way. I mean, even if you're for the guy, I get it. But the argument is everybody's got thoughts they wish they didn't have. Yeah, yeah, we can create a living hell um, for ourselves or we can create heaven on earth. That's Blake's argument Yeah, in a nutshell. Blake's nice. argument in a nutshell is change your, Sam Harris is he's a famous guy, he's a famous writer, he's a neuroscientist, and he's made the argument that if you take ayahuasca or DMT or LSD-25, you modify your brain in such a way that you get a completely different understanding of reality. It's obvious it's true because think about it. Right now, you and I are talking and our neurons are firing in a certain way. So we see reality as soon. Change that chemistry, see reality quite differently. Elon Musk, who's kind of a nut job, but he's brilliant. But he, he says that he's convinced that we don't live in base reality. He, he's convinced we're already in a virtual reality. Mm. Now, my son, Sean, is really good at VR competitions. Won awards, got third place in North America. And I'm an early adopter to all things virtual reality. Once you put on an Oculus Quest, have you ever done Oculus Quest VR? No. It'll blow your mind. Once you put it on, you're rocking a death of the world. Wow. And the funny thing about that is that it's just a screen that's two or three inches away from your head, and it's manipulating your vision of reality. Well, here's the punch. Our brains are the world's or the universe's, as far as we can tell, best VR headset ever evolved or created. Because that's what you're getting. You're not getting reality as it is. Whatever incoming data streams that you get, you modify through your eyes, your ears, your olfactory nerve, and your brain transfigures that chemical electrical signals into what we call a holographic image in the back of your head. So you've, you and I, this sounds really weird, kind of mystical, but it's really neuroscience. We've never seen reality as it is ever. All we've ever seen is a filtering of that reality by our brain. That's you know, true, yeah. A squirrel or a shark, completely different reality. Yeah. I mean, the incoming data stream is there. I'm not, I'm not doing a Shirley MacLaine kind of thing. It's just that the brain changes and sees it differently. Yeah. I call it the virtual simulator alter your virtual simulator yeah well and like i was saying before you know since i've gotten into yoga and, and meditation and you know people started using that language with me about frequency you're on a different frequency and at first i thought that just sounded so strange and bizarre but now i really do feel it when i'm going inward when i'm doing that work on myself reality does look different and for years now i've been saying well not so much lately 
But before, I kept saying to myself, when am I going to get my Hollywood moment? And what I meant by that was I wasn't looking to be a movie star, but I was waiting to be discovered. Like, I've heard all these stories about, you know, like David Hasselhoff was one apparent, like he was on an airplane and someone saw him and said, you'd be perfect for Knight Rider. And, you know, next thing <laughs> you know, he's a big star. So I kept waiting for someone to hand me something. Like something's just divine is going to happen to me and it's going to be all figured out. And it never happened. Um, it wasn't until I started doing this work. And now, like my friends were over the other day and I'm moving next week and I've got a couple of things on the go. This podcast podcast has started the brand started and someone said wow Derek like your dreams are all manifesting like you're just on fire things are happening and I I had to stop and think like wow you're right I hadn't really stopped and looked at it but I'm on that frequency now that I was always jealous of other people saying why aren't those good things coming in my field you're right and what you're doing is if you think about it it's pretty simple you're, you're doing it you're yeah. doing it versus thinking about it. Mm. You know, I, as you know, most people like to dream, I'm going to do this, I'm going to write the great novel, and they don't do it. Yeah. And what you've done is you simply said, I'm doing it. And yoga is a good point that you make, because yoga is really about doing it. Mm. Yeah. Right? I mean, the breath control, pranayama, the asanas. You know, I wrote a book, which I'm kind of, actually, kind of it's very small, called The Yoga of Body Circle. Mm. And I even made a movie, I think I sent you a link to it. Yeah. And, and it's, it's exactly that. I mean, nobody thinks of when they body surf that they're doing yoga. Mm -hmm. But the funny thing is you're doing yoga because yeah. you're doing breath retention. Mm -hmm. And there's a famous book back in the 50s where this Indian guy, Guru, meets this, I think probably this British guy who's in bad health. And he tells him to do yoga and the guy blows him off. He comes back a month or two months later and the guy's in great shape. He goes, mm -hmm. what did you do? He goes, well, I saw the kids swimming and catching waves going back and forth. And, they, and he noticed what the guy was doing. Every time you caught a wave, he had to breathe in deep, mm. hold the breath, yeah. and then when he, you know, and breathe out. And he, all of a sudden, he was doing a natural pranayama. Mm -hmm. Well, the same thing with body surfing. You're doing asanas. You're doing certain kind of hand or mudra position. Yeah. And the same thing with dhyan, which is, as you know, in yoga, concentrate. And if you're a good body surfer, man, especially at Point Pan, best body surfing spot in the world, you got to concentrate because you want to get the end of that too. Yeah. So doing it is what's happening. Yeah, yeah and things like paddle boarding and and uh, paddling out for surfing, those are all to me like moving meditations, you know, right brain, left brain, neutralizing. It's all fantastic. The form of intelligence, too. You know, I oftentimes think, think about how intelligent surfers have to be because they got to navigate an energy flow from thousands of miles away and time and position, right? They got to be in the right place to get it. And then at the same time, coordinate their entire body to go down that slope to make sure they don't go over the falls and their friends make fun of them. I want to get into personal history. Mm -hmm. And so, you know what I mean? So you're right. You mentioned earlier, you know, the stereotype of surfers being bums. But then in your book, you talk about surfers actually being water physicists, like they scientists. That's it. And they're water and they're scientists in a real sense of the term. Richard Feynman was a very famous physicist of the last 50 years, won the Nobel Prize for the quantum electrodynamics. He made an argument, which I really, I've always liked. He says, knowledge is not knowing the name of something. Knowledge is when you can functionally do something. And then surfers are all functional. And therefore, they're scientists in the sense they know a lot about wave conditions. You know that. Mm -hmm. the wind. You can almost look outside. Oh, it's going to be offshore. It's going to blow out. And where the waves are coming in the right position. They say that's about Tom Curran and also Slater and others. These guys are real master physicists because mm. they have figured it out. They can ride it. Like think of Sean Thompson, the way he rides in a tube. Sometimes he says he felt like he could manipulate inside the tube. Yes. It was so one way. Yeah. Yeah. And someone like Laird Hamilton as well, who yeah. 
I don't know if he finished high school either. I think his education was maybe cut short. And he's brilliant. Yeah, he's yes. Um, think about what he's done. You know, he's done kite surfing. He's, I mean, uh, wave uh, paddleboarding. He's a great body surfer. He's an amazing surfer. And his stuff. You know, he, he really works with his hands. He's, he's a good carpenter. He creates, and he's highly intelligent. Even though, like you said, he doesn't have a you know a degree from some school. Who yeah. cares? Yeah. You know, I always make the argument: What is a PhD? I have a PhD, so I can make fun of it. What's a PhD stand for? Phenomenally dumb. What's an MS stand for? More shit. What's a BS? You know, back the bullshit. And what's an AS? Not even shit. It's associated shit. You're not even in. Yeah. It. And that's true, right? I mean, it just doesn't mean anything ultimately. Yeah. I think they're great if you want that for yourself. I just don't like the pressure that you should have that to be somebody. No, it's, yeah. It's ridiculous. What you really want. Look, I, I have a, a good story. I love this story. I, I went to a, this is back in the day when guys at gas stations would do your gas, you know, fill your mm. gas tank. So it's on Delmar Heights. I, I go to the gas station. I go get my gas filled up and it's Dan. Now Dan had a PhD in like computer science and music theory, right? This guy's brilliant. He's pumping my gas. I go, Dan, you're a famous PhD doctorate. You know, and he looks at me, he goes, yeah, what's the point? I go, well, you're pumping gas. He goes, that's what I want to do. I want to pump gas. True story. Okay. <laughs> the best gas attendant. I'm not making it up. Yeah. And another last story is I walked into the Sunshine Store at UCSD when I was getting my PhD, and there was this guy who had three master's degrees, okay, three, and he was the, he was the counter guy, you know, the guy, the register. And every time we walked in, there'd be this big freaking line, you know, to get your food because you only had a 10-minute break. But we'd all get excited when we saw him because the guy behind the counter was the master. He knew how to, oh, he was like Karate Kid. And we would go by him, and we'd like bow to him. <laughs> We got through quick. Oh, that's what he wanted to do. And what your point is, fuck the degrees, pardon my language. Just do what you really like, what you really love, and be good at it. Yeah. That's it. Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. And with that, though, I do have a question I think about sometimes is we're always being told by society to aim bigger, you know, be what you want to be. Kind of like you're saying, which I believe is a great message and, and I believe in. At the same time, though, I wonder, there's also a bunch of shitty jobs out there that <laughs> someone has to do. Like someone has to be that cleaner or pick the crop or whatever. So are we diminishing those people by putting them in those positions? Or are there people who, like you're saying, the gas attendant, I want to pick beans or that's what I'm meant for this, you know? Well, let's let's think about this. This COVID thing that's happened has shown us who are the most important people. That's true. Yeah. Right? Not the freaking politicians, not the teachers. Uh -uh. The most important people are the guys who give us the food. Yeah. The guys who pick up our trash, you know, clean up stuff. These are the elemental people. These are the real thing. And I think what you're suggesting is, and that you're on the right track, is we should honor these people in ways that we don't. Yeah. You know, we honor the lawyer or the doctor. Don't get me wrong. They should be honored as well. But hey, wait a second, guys. I'm more impressed with somebody who goes into work eight hours a day. Like you said, hard labor job. Yeah. It's impressive. And well, you can always take a Zen approach to it because, you know, in Zen, it comes down to like really simple tasks. Like the Zen master, you come in, I, I want to learn how to do Zazen. You know, I want to learn how to meditate. And the Zen master goes, clean up the kitchen, you know, yeah. pick a broom, you know. And on one level, it's kind of true, right? Laird Hamilton, let's go back to him. Mm -hmm. He makes the argument that every time you wake up in the morning, you should make your bed. Mm. Number one thing you should do, accomplish something. And, you know, not that I 
Not that I've made my bed. Yeah, really, yeah. And Laird can do it all for me. Yeah. But I've thought about that, what you're saying about COVID. That's interesting because these people who are the essential workers are essentially also paid the least too. And I'm thinking, like you're saying the lawyers and things. I mean, yeah, these guys work hard and, and all these other jobs that pay a lot work hard, but in a different way. Like who's to say that the guy cleaning or picking or isn't working as hard? I just don't buy that. Oh, I, I think he working harder. I mean, I yeah. actually think they work harder. I mean, just think about just as the postman. I know it sounds weird, but he has to sort the mail every morning. It's got to, you know, mind numb you. And then he's got to go to all these different places, get the mail. And, and that's a lot of work. And it, it's, it's a repetitive job. I call it highly entropic, which means you got to keep repeating. I used to be a dishwasher, mm. so I totally understand. That's yeah. You know, you wash a dish, yeah. you get another dish, you got to wash it and keep doing it. But you know what? It's elemental. And it's how society runs. Granted, you can't, there probably should be like maybe the sustainable income. Yeah. That's what we need. We need something where everyone could have a decent living. You know, maybe, maybe not have a yacht like Jeff Bezos, you know, you know, $100 billion, but enough that you feel like, hey, you know, I got enough food. I, I can entertain myself. We just have I think to have that's what's hard to see, the gap. It's such a large gap, and, and that's what's hard to see. Why is one person worthy of having all these things or having these types of, of experiences and lifestyle while the other family is stuck in a one-bedroom apartment with three kids or something? Like right. You know, my friend Pat, who runs that $3 billion company, he's a really good guy. He came up with a great line. He says, look, capitalism without ethics is just evil. He says that capitalism with compassion passion. And he talked about money. He says, money, Dave, is like fertilizer. You got to spread it around. You can't just hoard it. And Pat yeah. is constantly thinking about how to give back. And he does mm -hmm. it all the time because he's just a great guy. And, and even though he makes a lot of money and even though he has a great house and he's got a great life, he's always constantly saying, well, I met a guru in India once who I was deeply attached to. And he said, always have your hands like this, never like this. Mm. You know, always think about trying to give. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's, that's the secret to the whole thing. You'll feel better. Like if a wave, yeah. Jerry Lopez says, mm. going back to surfing to make it all yep. connected. Yeah. Says, There's going to be another way. You don't need to fight over this wave to snake this guy because you have to have this wave. Let it go. Give him a wave. Yeah. I think uh, I read similar thing with Duke Kahanamoku. His quote was something like, yeah, well, yeah, you don't get it, get the next one. Yeah, yeah right. No like, big deal. Nothing to way. freak out over. Right. You know, it's like, and, and Mark Cunningham is a really good body surfer who I've met a number of times. He says, it's just a way. Yeah. Don't, don't overdo it. You know, yeah. don't. I think what you're saying though about the organizations, I think that that's pretty admirable when people are, when they get their company to a place that they can focus on the people and give back to them somehow rather than just turning to greed and pocketing that. And yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, like a good example is like at Berkeley, there's this wonderful place called cheese board and it's kind of a co-op. They make good money, but everybody shares the money. You know, everybody works hard. They all kind of democratize it. And that, that's a good, that's a good model. And, and you kind of wish people like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk and others who, you know, make a lot of money, done lots of great things would kind of give back a little more. You know, Gates is doing it. You know, Gates had a bad reputation yeah. back in the 80s. I mean, I, I remember people hated Gates because they liked Apple. Yeah. But now Gates is spending most of his time, hopefully, trying to give back. Mm. You know, what are you going to do with it? You know, how much money do you need? Anyway? Yeah. Didn't people hate him because he kind of created a monopoly? Like, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Bill Gates was considered like the anti <laughs> they, they, Now, Zuckerberg has taken over that role, but back then it was Gates. 
Yeah. And I remember at UCSD, oh, I hate gates, I hate windows, you know, blah, blah, blah. And now he's made tons of money. It was a great lifestyle, but he's got this idea, right, of trying to give back to certain countries like in Africa and otherwise. And that's a great, th- I think that's a great thing. I mean, that's the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. He has been pretty monumental in that. And I know he's created this thing called the uh, Knowledge Philanthropist, sending his people out there to do even more work. Yeah. Right. Of course, then you have the conspiracy theories on the internet that Gates wants to vaccinate everybody so that he can make more money off of them. Like a hundred billion is not enough. Oh my goodness. We live on a planet with a bunch of, remember, we live on a madhouse. Yeah. Everybody's kind of like, well, yeah, he's doing good. Yeah. Wow. Well, this was, uh, you know, this was a really great talk. We went into some pretty cool areas. We could go way down the rabbit hole on <laughs> capitalism and, and some of these things and Right. and consciousness maybe we'll talk again sometime but hey before you go maybe tell me a little bit more about your body surfing um yeah you lifestyle know, it's funny, it's funny and funny you say that like, every time i go to a conference or i give a talk like in india or whatever only thing i ever care about is like i don't care about all my days and all the books and stuff i just care about the fact that i once won the world body surfing contest okay. so i always yeah. like, throw that in there you know like, like it yeah. man's ego and uh, I, I have been body surfing for, you know, ever since I was a kid, Pat Donnie, you know, the guy that runs the big company, he was the one who taught me. And so I went, entered these body surfing contests and I didn't do very good, but eventually I won Manhattan, I think for my division, like eight times and, and it, at the world body surfing contest in 99. And I met Cunningham and Mike Stewart, you know, all the famous, unbelievably good body surfers. We surf, wow. body surf panic and stuff. Body surfing for me is as you know i love surfing don't get me wrong i love it all i like boogie boarding surfing it doesn't matter what it is yeah there's something about body surf that's so pure and so great that when you're in like a tube the good thing about body surfing is you get tubed a lot easier even though you'll never make it out you're just you know (laughs) (laughs) but uh right and then sometimes like i shot the pier body surfing which is really sketchy because you know surfing through a pier is one thing body surfing through a pier is quite another but my ego was so large once at a contest. So you'll like the story. I had never won a contest at, at Manhattan at the international contest. And there's about 20 seconds left, right? And I said, the only freaking way I can win this thing is I got to shoot the pier because nobody shoots the pier, right? It's kind of sketchy. So I go and I shoot the pier, right? And the guy that was going to win the contest is on the beach looking at me. And he looks at me and he flips me off like, F <laughs> you, man. I'm like, woo. And so, uh, but the, I've given up contests. You know, I haven't done those. Yeah. But the people you meet are all incredible. They're much better than I. I oftentimes it's luck, but there's some great people and they're all like, just love the ocean, you know? So when you're going out to the ocean and I, I'm not sure if you have this dialogue that says, what am I going to do? Am I going to go surfing or am I going to go body surfing? Yes, I have it all. Yeah, and I'm wondering how you make that distinction. Are the conditions different for... Very good. It all depends on my friends, to be honest with you. Like if I'm with John Robotham in Hawaii, we're going to stand up, sir. If I'm with Jim Miller, we'll stand up, sir. If I'm with Pat Donahue and Jody Chiro and Rob Gilmore, we're probably going to boogie board. You know, we're going to bodyboard. Because they like to be wet. And if I'm not with them, I'm just with Pat or my brother Joe, we'll body surf. So I have all three, I have all equipment in the car. I got a surfboard, I got my boogie boards or my wave beaters or whatever and i got my fins and you drive the car you look at the conditions and you pick yeah i'm really excited because i live in vancouver right now um which has been an amazing 12 years but we're about to move back to ontario right on lake huron 
in sort of a, a place that's a little more northern. There's some woods up there. It's uh, and there's some beautiful blue water and shipwrecks and things. So I'm really looking forward to to getting back to not only just surfing, but doing some diving and swimming and fishing and really just absorbing myself fantastic, fully into the water culture again. I, I cannot wait. You're doing the Waterman thing, right? Yeah. All, right? And yeah. that's what's great. I mean, that's what's, you know, what's cool about all this. You know, I give Jamie O'Brien a lot of credit because Jamie O'Brien started riding these soft surfboards, you know, the ones you could buy at Costco. You know, oh, yeah. And he could ride them like, you know, better than anybody could ride a regular surfboard. And he, his whole idea was to have fun because mm. you don't, probably don't know this, maybe you do, but back in the 60s and 70s, there was a certain kind of seriousness about surfing. Mm. You had to have the right board, the right wetsuit, the right hair, the right girlfriend. You had to be kind of cool. Oh, okay. F that shit. Yeah. You just want to have fun. You ride yeah. a boogie board, a raft, you, you flail, who cares? And that's what's changed about surfing for me now. Because I've seen the whole thing wide open, like yeah. the water. Do whatever makes you happy. Yeah. Is it, fr do you find it, is it a friendlier culture these days in California? No. Or, no. yeah? Okay. No. I, I know people claim not. It's much. Yeah. And again, it's because parents have young kids that surf. Right? Okay. And, you know, because the back in those days, it was just a certain kind of adolescent yuppie culture. Now it's all ages. You know, you got guys who are 85 surfing. You got guys who are five years old surfing. Mm -hmm. There's lots of more women in the Yeah, age, yeah. Which is really helps there. Yeah. Because here, uh, I would say both in Canada and on the Great Lakes, it's such a, a niche kind of thing that everyone's, usually everyone's rooting for each other. Like it's a big community, you know, because we're all in this together, especially on the Great Lakes. Um, I think, you know, people have this feeling of like, this is absolutely absurd, you know, in a way we're surfing on a lake, like we shouldn't be able to do this, but we can. Yeah. And especially, you know, people from the coast don't always realize the just how big the Great Lakes are. That's and right. And how big power they get a good that, wind yeah. I've yeah. seen some waves there. I'm like, shit, can't believe yeah. that's coming out of a lake. The thing you're talking about with body surfing is sort of how I felt last week with paddleboarding and surfing. You were talking about bodyboarding, you have nothing. You have no board, no tools. It's just you and the wave. And so for me, last year, I sort of got into stand-up paddle surfing as well. Just another addition to my quiver. You know, I can surf when I want to. I can stand-up paddle surf when I want to. So I was out there surfing the first day. Then a wave broke my board in half. So then, I, yeah, so that sucked. And then I used a... I, rented a soft top for a couple hours like you were talking about i was not successful on that that thing was you know, no squirrely. rocker yeah really yeah it was wild like i would just kind of catch a wave the the first inkling of it then i would just fall off so then i got on a stand-up paddleboard the next day and i did that for the whole day and it was great i caught some awesome waves but at the end of the day i just i said to myself i just want to surf like I just need to go surfing tomorrow. I don't want this paddle. I don't want all these tools. And at because at first the appeal for stand-up paddle surfing was the fact that I'm already standing. I don't have to worry about catching a wave, right? But after a day of doing that, I, I missed what seemed like the work portion of surfing the, the actual paddling and standing up yeah so for me i can relate to that 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 felt more natural just being with the board right and then well, these you know, yeah you raise a good point like think about this towing surfing was really big about 10 to 12 to 13 years ago it's still around but if you notice 
it's all about paddling into big waves. Mm. The towing thing is really, and that's the reason. I think they just thought, well, it's easy, I can do it, but it's not the same. Yeah. You know, like your own strength, your own feeling of that huge wave coming in. Now, my friend, John Robotham, who lives in Waikiki, he loves stand-up paddle at Waikiki, which is part yeah. of the mecca of the place. But I have done it, but I don't really like it as much mm. because I don't like holding on to something. Yeah. I like the freedom of my arms being free. But yeah. that's, you know, well yeah. like you said, it's all options. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the sport keeps progressing. Like, and now we have foils and then they have e-foils. And oh it's my just God. They've gotten growing. so good at those things. Those foils yeah. scare the shit out of me though, to be honest with you. Yeah. I'm in the water and I see a foil coming out. <laughs> I'm going to get decapitated. Yeah. They're good at it. Those guys are good well there was a guy here riding an e-foil around in the harbor and a guy was riding one around and he actually got it taken away as our our water sort of rules transport canada they don't have e-foils as a vehicle type in their manual or whatever yet so they actually didn't know what to do with this guy they confiscated it from him um and that was that and they said you know we'll get back to you i'm hoping you got it back because those are fifteen thousand dollar machine yeah right and literally he was around nobody he wasn't doing it at a populated beach or anything like that but yeah it's just kind of interesting the, uh... Well, there, there are going to be restrictions on it, as you know, because like this happened with jet skis. When jet skis became mm. popular, you know, about 25 years ago, there were guys jet skiing, you know, in San Onofre and stuff. That's been prohibited. They've okay. Gotten, so I yeah. think the same thing with the foil. I think they're going to have to have limitations about where people do it. Yes, definitely some zoning anyways. No, yeah, well, definitely nobody at Malibu is going to be allowed to do it. Yeah. I, Everybody... Yeah, it's like surfing at Waikiki Beach and almost getting smashed by those uh, catamar- or those catamarans, oh, oh those friend. outrigger canoes. Oh. oh my god! Oh my friend, John tells me that there's been a couple deaths, and he says sometimes they flip over. Yeah, and they, sometimes they're you know. So yeah, I've been on those things. There's fun as hell. It's God. They look fun, but they're scary as hell when they're coming straight at you. I've oh, been in the in the line of fire of those things. Oh, wow. they don't care. They're just like yeah. yeah. oh absolutely david it has been so awesome talking to you before i let you go do you have anything to do you have anything to plug or anywhere people connect Uh, with you well i could plug you know if you every book i I, i'm the head of this thing called the msac philosophy group uh a guy named dr runnenbaum and i developed it about 25 30 years ago and we we published a lot of books right so we've published like 350 books or something wow and every one of those books just so you know are free as downloadable Mm -hmm. pdf you know the book on tom blake or yoga so if you go to neuralsurfer.com you mean I didn't have to spend seven Canadian dollars? On there you go. You copy. could have gotten that watch. <laughs> you could just download it. And all the books that we do sell, as you probably picked up, are not very expensive. We try not to make any. Because, you know, students don't have any money. So, But if you go to my website, Neurosurfer, go to like library or books, everything's there. Okay. And we also have audio books and a bunch of films on there. So I am the avid reader in the house. My wife is not. However, if she gets her hands on something to do with a cult or an abduction or something like that, she burns through it. She's uh, like huge that. into the you know, Leah, what is it, Leah Remanini show about Scientology, and she's you know read books on Waco and different things. So, what are some of your books that may be of interest? Oh, I've written. A, I wrote a book back in called Exposing Cults. I wrote a book called The Making of a Spiritual Movement. I wrote a book on. John Roger called the criminal activities of John Roger. He got a ton of them. You okay. should, what I'll do is I'll email you a link. Okay. You know what I mean? To give it, 
But you know, forget me. I'll give you some ones that are kind of fun. Um, the the Barefaced Messiah on Scientology is really good. Uh, there's another book uh, you may have seen it called Going Clear. That's very famous. Oh yeah, I've read it. Yeah. Uh, the other one that's really good is um, I'm trying to remember the title. It's on the Hare Krishnas called something. I forget the title. It's really good. Real scandalous. You know, people getting killed. You know, cult stuff happening. And yeah, the one I wrote that's probably the more interesting called The Shadow of a Godman. It's about Satya Sai Baba. And Sai Baba was this famous guru in India. And he turned out to be this massive pedophile. And he claimed he could do these miracles, you know, out of his hand. And it's all bad sleight of hand magician shit. Nice. That's the all one right. I get death threats for for like years. Yikes. I'm, I'm, I'm keeping it low. I'm on the low down. <laughs> all right. Yeah, we'll check those out. And is there anywhere people can connect with you if they want to reach out to you on yeah, Facebook? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they can always check me at, you know, dlane at mountsac.edu or neuralsurfer at yahoo.com. Perfect. Yeah, you just type in neuralsurfer, you'll find something. Neural surfer, you're the neural surfer. Well, thank you for sharing your knowledge about surfing, body surfing, Tom Blake, cults, religion. This was a real fascinating yeah, yeah, keep me posted about how how this all goes. It's great. Man. Yeah, I will do absolutely. All right, mahalo for being here and stay stoked. All right, brother. Thank you, man. That's all for another episode of Permastoked. I hope you enjoyed listening or watching that one. Man, that was a lot of fun talking to him. Wow, Dr. David Christopher Lane, mahalo for being here, for being so honest, funny, and informative. Man, and if you want to connect with him, you can find him through email at neuralsurfer at yahoo.com or on Facebook at neuralsurfer or on Twitter at neuralsurfer. And be sure to check out his books at www.neuralsurfer.com where you can find Tom Blake, a surfer's philosophy, and his other works for free. And for more on Blake, get yourself a copy of Tom Blake, The Uncommon Journey of a Pioneer Waterman by Gary Lynch or the Tom Blake Scrapbook, both available online at www.shacc.org from Kroll Publishers in Newport Beach. And we want to say a big mahalo to Mark Malibu and the Wasagas for providing us with our intro music, Hey Chihuahua, from their 2009 album entitled Crash Monster Beach, and our outro music, End of Summer, off their 2017 album, Return of the Wasagas. Be sure to check them out and download their music on iTunes today. And we especially want to say mahalo to all you listeners out there. We're so grateful that you chose to join us for this episode, and we look forward to providing you with even more awesome content in the future, because there are more episodes on their way. In the meantime, feel free to go back and listen to previous episodes. And if you enjoyed listening or watching the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Please leave us a rating and a review, and share with your family and friends over social media or by telling people about it. You can also watch the show by visiting our YouTube channel, Freshwater Surf Goods. To learn more about Freshwater Surf Goods and to check out our products and services, visit freshwatersurfgoods.com. Be sure to sign up for the newsletter to stay up to date on new products, events, our SUP and yoga schedule, and other exciting news. And you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Freshwater Surf Goods. We are currently in need of artists and graphic designers to help us out with new product designs for the brand. 
We need photographers to provide some great lakes in both East Coast and West Coast surf photography. We need musicians for music on the podcast. We want to make this a real community effort and have you all be a part of it. Or if you have an idea for collaboration, would like to recommend a future guest, would like to invite me to an event or book me to teach SEP or yoga, or if you or your company are interested in being a sponsor of the show, hit me up on social media or email me at Derek at freshwatersurfkids.com. That's Derek spelled the Viking way. No double R's or C's, just D-E-R-I-K at freshwatersurfkids.com. And finally, Freshwater Surf Goods, our SUP school, Great Vibes Yoga, Meditation and Healing, and the Permastoke podcast are all currently based out of Vancouver, BC, with the intention of relocating to the Great Lakes region. My preference is to move somewhere along the coast of Lake Huron between Concordia and Sauble Beach to get that good surf and be in the woods somewhere. But we are open to other coastal communities in Southern Ontario. If you have any advice on how I might bring my business there and get set up, I would be extremely grateful. Also, I understand that I may need to get a real job for a while, so my education and work background is primarily in Native community work, frontline emergency social service work, and coordinating both long-term and short-term nonprofit programs and projects. If you have any leads or suggestions around potential employment opportunities or relocation services, and how we might make the transition from the West Coast back to Ontario, it would be greatly appreciated. I look forward to next time and getting to know you all better. In the meantime, I'm your host, Derek Hyatt. Mahalo, freshies. Keep surfing and stay stoked.